I was the mayor of the largest city in my state. And when we would have our city council meetings, there would be four, five, six media television stations, newspapers, writers, and so forth and so on. Today, you'd probably be lucky if there were one or two. And what that means is there are communities all over the United States of America where mayors are not held accountable, city councils, school boards are not held accountable. That is a disaster for democracy. Hello, and welcome back to the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. I'm Molly Simpson, one of the staff writers here at The Mill, and today I'm joined by my editor, Yoshi Herman. Yoshi, hi, nice to have you back. Hey, good to be back on the pod. Thanks for coming. We've had a very exciting week in The Mill, very unusual, I think. We had a visitor yesterday afternoon um, from the US. Mr. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders, as I called yeah. him when I met him, yeah. I don't know why I'm playing coy. It's, it's so exciting, I've been telling everyone. Um, <laughs> he came in, he was in, been in Manchester for a book launch. His new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, is out now, and he's been discussing this with the sociologist Gary Young at um, home in Manchester. He's also discussed it with Navarra Media as part of his press tour, and we managed to get a bit of time with him as well to about the state of local news so it was so exciting that our teams from liverpool and birmingham came in <laughs> just to catch the sight of him so when he first arrived obviously came in the navarra lot were about to interview him mm. um, shook his hand and stuff and then i got a bit of time with him to ask him some stuff yeah mainly asked him just about local news and like i kind of knew that he cared about this because when he was running for president i was actually living in the us um 2017 and he wrote about like how he wanted to rebuild journalism or support you know independent media um so i thought he'd be interested in it but i was actually so like happy with his responses it was so clear and so kind of urgent and and well articulated so yeah it was amazing it was it felt like a really happy coincidence of just interest and opinions that you you seem to align very neatly on what what you thought about the state of local news and and just how it impacts local communities as well yeah definitely i think a lot of Big politicians don't really think about this issue or care about it, but it seemed to me, and we'll play the clip in a minute of, mm. of, of, of me asking him a few questions about this, but it seemed to me like he actually does care about it and like mm. he has thought about it and he's passionate about this area. I mean, obviously he's passionate about loads of things, but I think it's interesting because obviously his book is about, you know, it's okay to be angry with capitalism and his whole platform is that the market has let us down in various ways. And I think in the local news space, like that's an area where you could really say he is right. Like the mm. market has given us a set of big companies who dominate local news in the US and the UK. They have local monopolies. They completely took their readers for granted. The big corporate owners stopped caring about the quality of the local product. All they cared about was cutting, cutting, cutting to maintain profit margins. It's not like these became loss-making businesses. Mm. They carried on being profit-making, but they just kept on cutting people. And so I think a Bernie Sanders-style analysis really applies like to local journalism. It really applies. Yeah. And I think it's nice to speak to people um, like that who, who get it. And obviously it's amazing for us to have like a huge American politician in the office. Yeah, I was going to ask you that when you started The Mill, was it nearly three years ago, nearly four years ago now, sorry. Did you ever expect Bernie Sanders, former Democratic presidential candidate and US senator to be in our office? Yeah, definitely not. Um, and it kind of came about because Navarro wanted to do their chat with him here and they liked our office. They just, mm. I, there was an email from one of people at Navarro saying your pretty office or your beautiful office or something. <laughs> so um, it all comes from my interior design skills, really, and my Facebook marketplace magpieing. 
But no, it's, it, was, it was amazing, actually, to have him here. When we shared the video clips this week on Twitter and Instagram and stuff, you could tell people were really excited. Really excited, yeah. I think people really saw the value in, in having someone like Bernie Sanders speak to the issues in local media that, that you've been discussing for the last few years mm. and why we've had such a singular focus on accuracy and, and care and consideration and, and thoughtfulness in, in journalism. Yeah, definitely. So we'll get into that conversation in a second, but first we have to thank our sponsor for this week's episode. So... Manchester Museum last year had this major reopening after a long refurbishment. Um, it's a huge critical acclaim. The New York Times noted it was the first permanent museum gallery in Britain to spotlight the South Asian diaspora in a new space that focuses on the community's lived experience and what it means to be British and South Asian at the same time. Um, that gallery is is amazing. Have you been, Yoshi? Yeah, so I wrote about it at the time. Of course. Yeah. Um, before we were working with um, the Manchester Museum, I wrote about it. And it is really cool. That South Asia gallery is like very varied, very colourful. It's got loads of cool musical stuff about it. It's got a lot of cool stuff about subcultures. It's a nice mix of stuff that's South Asian and stuff that's like British South Asian. And when I went there, maybe it's because it was the opening night, but there was a tremendous amount of like excitement and kids running around and like people being, I don't know, really excited about the whole thing. So I think that was a year ago. When, mm. the, when, the, when the big re- relaunch happened at the museum. Mm. And I think that from my perspective, I think it sounds like what the museum is trying to do is position itself in the city as not just like a collection of objects, mm. but as a place where they want to start conversations. They mm. want to have exhibits and galleries that get people talking and get people sharing and, and, and that kind of thing. And I think this kind of gallery is an important part of that. And, and the obvious part of this is that the South Asian community in Greater Manchester is mm. a massively important part of the whole community. And particularly, I mean, obviously you've got places like Oldham and Rochdale where it's like, you know, an enormous number of people of South Asian background, but in Manchester as well and across the whole of the city region. So it's cool that there's now, I think, a place in Greater Manchester where their stories and their background, their heritage are represented. I'd imagine that's really meaningful to people from the South Asian community. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we're grateful to the museum for sponsoring the episode. Mm. If you're listening to this and you haven't checked out that gallery, you should go and do that. But also there's the um, the Golden Mummies yeah. uh, exhibition, which closes quite soon. I think it ends in April. Yeah, so that's phenomenal. Um, and obviously there's the dinosaur and there's all the rest of it to look at on the same visit. So yeah, thanks for sponsoring and we'll put um, a link in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much to, to Manchester Museum. So Yoshi, you sat down with Bernie Sanders yesterday and you said to him, how concerned are you about the decimation of local newspapers in the UK? Why does it matter and what kind of things are you seeing in the US? So let's hear a clip from that now. Um, Figures published last week in the UK showed a colossal decline in local news since the financial crash. About 6,000 fewer local journalists working. We've had years of the large media conglomerates that control most of local news cutting, cutting, cutting. One of them actually cut 850 jobs last year. How concerned are you about the decline of local news in the US and the UK across the world? It is a huge problem in the United States. Uh, I'm not surprised to hear what's going on in the UK. I was the mayor of the largest city in my state. And when we would have our city council meetings, there would be four, five, six media, television stations, newspapers, writers, and so forth and so on. Today, you'd probably be lucky if there were one or two. And what that means is there are communities all over the United States of America where mayors are not held accountable 
city councils, school boards are not held accountable. That is a disaster for democracy. In terms of local people who want to know about what's happening in their right. communities, how alarmed are you about the fact that they don't get that kind of information anymore? What kind of effect does that have on local life? Well, what it means is I'm a mayor and there's no local media telling people what I am doing. I could do anything I want. Who's going to know about it? So it is, from the citizen's point of view, absolutely horrific that they are not being informed of what their local governments or what is happening in their community in general. How can you be a good citizen and participate if you don't know what's going on? So this is a very serious problem in America. And we're seeing more and more communities lose their local newspapers and, and their local radio stations. And that's a very serious problem. And do you have any hope that there could be an alternative where you have independent local news taking up, so, you know, where there have been huge losses, huge job losses by these large conglomerates? Well, I think what we need to do is to take a hard look at public funding done in a non-political way, making sure that, you know, it's not government propaganda, but making sure that independent local journal, uh, local news organizations can receive public funding in order to inform their communities about what's going on. So this is very interesting. I've got a politician who's not sort of attacking or making like an enemy of the press like you sometimes do see in the US, but sort of calling for something that's much, much stronger, much more, more rigorous and has the ability to scrutinize um, and particularly hold politicians to account. And he sort of puts a lot of faith in the function of local press to, to restore a healthy democracy, which is which is a huge thing. I mean, what did you make of his response, Yoshi? Yeah, so he is not like in government, right? He does, it's not like he is kind of the prime minister here or in the White House there. So he he can speak from a different vantage point. He mm. can point out the problems that local news collapse has in communities without talking about the people who are like kind of covering him, as it were. So I think he's got a different vantage point. But the fact that he's able to use that to talk about this issue, I think is really great. What did I think of what he said? Well, A, I massively agree with him about the damage to communities when they don't have good local information. I think that my favourite line from his whole thing was, how can people be good citizens and participate if they don't know what's going on? Like, mm. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But that is such a key point. And that's not just about like information and what's happening in your local council or your local courts. It's also, do you know who the people who run the schools are? Do you know who the people who run the theatres are? Do you know what's happening locally? Do you know about the good ideas, the community initiatives? Everything like that. So I think that that's key. And, and I think he's right to put his finger on the fact that, like, ultimately, if you want to participate in your local area, you need to know what's going on. And I think part of that can be done by Facebook groups and part of it can be done by, you know, lots of things that happen on social networks. But I think good quality local journalism is a massive part of that. Mm. So it was cool to him to say that. Yeah, and Bernie Sanders' position on, on how we can actually save local news, yeah. what do you make of that? He mentioned state funding, which is very, very interesting. Do you agree with that position? Yeah, look, I, that's a really interesting one. I think Bernie's proposal in his book is that effectively you tax advertising because what's happened is a lot of the advertising that used to be spent in local newspapers is now spent with like Facebook and Google. Mm. I think his proposal is basically you say, well, we should tax those transactions and pump some of it back into local media. Mm. So there's like an, a flow of, of, of money that goes from these enormous platforms or the, the clients who are spending money on them advertising to local journalism. 
I have to say, my take is always that ultimately, if we're going to solve the problems in local media, we need local organizations that are commercially sustainable. We need ones that can stand on their own two feet, i.e. you earn the money that you spend. So my doubt about anything to do with government funding or even arm's length state funding of local media is that you could end up funding things that fundamentally just don't work. Mm. And we know, like, because you've been involved in the mill almost right from the beginning, you know that every week we basically have to work out how do we get more people to subscribe. Mm -hmm. And because we have to do that, we have to work out what do people really care about? How did they respond to this story? How did they respond to that story? Should we try this? Should we try that? We're constantly trying to work out, okay, how do we get an extra 100 people paying every month? Mm-hmm. And I think the danger of like big grants from like charitable foundations or big you know government kind of funding of things is that it doesn't force you to work out what people actually will support and will mm-hmm. pay for. Now, the counter argument is we're in Manchester, but if we were doing this in like a village in Cumbria it would be much harder to get enough people to pay and therefore you do need some alternative non-commercial funding. For what we're doing, I really believe that it's got to be commercially sustainable as a company. It has to be commercially sustainable, not funded by grants, not funded by public funding. For other communities that I know less about, I think that might have to be on the table. So mm. so it's, a, it's maybe a nuanced kind of answer to that, but ultimately I don't think anything should be off the table because mm. the scale of the problems in local news, as we learned le- last week from those numbers that came out, you know, they're really, really, they're, they're stark. Yeah, no, let's, let's talk about some of those numbers. I mean, obviously Bernie Sanders is talking about the situation with local press in the US. It does also apply in, in the UK, this concept of news deserts. Press Gazette took a look at this recently. There's a new report out, which we'll, and we'll drop the link to that in the show notes. That report basically looked at three of the big local news publishers in the UK, so Reach PLC, who um, run Manchester Evening News, the Liverpool Echo, National World and NewsQuest. They looked at 2022 and found that the regional news sector was a quarter of the size it was in 2007. And when you adjust figures for inflation, the sector was around seven times smaller today than it was just on the evening of the 2008 financial crisis. So Dominic Ponsford, the editor of Press Gazette, wrote in this story... In 2022, all national, regional and magazine titles combined made around £2 billion in advertising, print and online, out of the £35 billion UK ad spend. Less than a fifth of what they were making in 2007, they've gone from taking 39% to 6% slice of the pie. That is yeah, that's mad. a huge reason to sound the alarm. Yeah, that's mad. So he's basically saying the large three companies and the companies they've acquired and merged with. So it was quite a complicated bit of work that Ponsford did. Mm. He basically worked out that they are employing around 6,000 fewer journalists. And he had to do some estimates and guesstimates in there to get to, to work out the percentage of a company that's a journalist versus ad people or whatever. But it looked like very robust research. And he says that there are 6,000 fewer working in local journalism just in those companies. So obviously, if you look at lots of other companies as well, it'll be even worse than that. So the the kind of conservative estimate is that there are 6,000 fewer local journalists working in this country, mm. which is crazy. As you just said, local journalism used to take loads of the ad spend mm. in the country. Now it takes a tiny amount. I don't know, it was, it was the first time I've ever seen really good figures for the UK. You see them for the US all the time. And actually, Bernie wrote a piece in 2017 or 2019 where he quoted some really good figures for the US. But it's the first time I've seen them in the UK. So like, hats off to... Dominic Ponsford and Press Gazette for doing that. Absolutely. But it's like, as I think I said on Twitter, like it should sound an alarm among people in Westminster, policymakers, because it's like this massive part of effectively our national infrastructure, local journalism, 
has collapsed. It's just disappeared. And you don't hear that if you hear like people from Reach PLC talking about how great their company is and how their plans and how they're reaching this and engaging that. They'll never talk about the fact that their company is a fraction of the size in terms of local journalism that it was, what is it, 15 years ago? Mm. You know, less than 20 years ago. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. The vanishing of local newspapers has become a bit of a talking point recently. I mean, you and uh, Sophie had a similar discussion about, about this on the Media Confidential podcast recently. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, legendary Fleet Street editors Alan Rusbridger and Lionel Barber host this podcast. They invited our editors Yoshi Herman and Sophie Atkinson on recently. So we'll just listen to a little clip from that specifically where they are discussing the mail. <laughs> Tyranny of the clicks is Tyranny terrible. The, yeah. I do think if... You know, it's not for me to micromanage the the middle company. I wouldn't dare. But if they did have a bit more money and they had a great local voice columnist writing about the community, not shrill political um, attacks on left or right or Andy Burnham or not or the Conservatives, but writing about the community a la Mike Royko. Well, yeah. you know, I, I just think that I would be such a pool. Mike Royko too, but, he, but you're right. It was a kind of sort of a mixture of reportage and, and voice. Yeah. And, and he was a beautiful writer. And people bought the Chicago Tribune and the Sun-Times that yeah. they worked just, just to read Royko. So where, is that? where are you out there in Manchester? And what, 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 what do you think about the business model, Lionel? I mean, it seems to me they've been quite cautious. They're doing the opposite of what websites like BuzzFeed did, which was sort of you know, enormous, extremely fast expansion built on an advertising model that turned out wasn't there. They're, they're being very cautious. Now, I, I think they're being very sensible in understanding that, that the money just isn't going to be on the digital advertising. I think they're being incredibly sensible in not overhiring, but being lean and mean, as I said. And I think they've been also good in looking to give a certain amount of content away free, and then on the value of the content, then try and convert that into subscriptions. So you sort of register and then go subscribe. That's a model that the FT pursued in the noughties before going to a harder paywall or, or so we say, a reinforced fence, I think was the technical term. But but the serious point here is their conversion rate, as I saw it in one of the pitch decks, was around 5%. That's pretty good, actually. Mm. But I I think now they they do need to be a bit more ambitious to scale up a little bit, a little bit faster. Uh, that would be my view. So you weren't in the room at this point of the interview. No. You, was it weird listening back to this podcast and hearing them talk about talk about the mill? Yeah, it was really weird because obviously they do the interview, which was a really nice interview, and Sophie spoke really, really well. And for context for listeners, like Alan used to edit The Guardian for a long time, and Lionel used to edit The FT for a long time, two of the really leading editors of their generation in the UK. So I was on holiday when I heard the whole podcast, and... Yeah, it was really weird to hear these two people who I've kind of really massive figures in journalism in the time that I've been in media talking about us, basically, and talking about like how we're doing and our plans and whether we've been cautious or whether we've been sensible. And yeah, it was like, it's so weird. I've never heard anything like it. It's almost listening to like a private conversation. It's a good podcast, actually, that Media Confidential, because it is just two people sometimes just chatting away about interesting stuff like that. But for me personally... It was bizarre. <laughs> and what did you think of their proposal for the mill growing a bit faster, being a little bit more aggressive with our approach? I, I don't know. Yeah, so, so, so I, 
I think they're right that we've been pretty sensible so far. Like we started the mill, and then when there was demand for, in in these other places, like we launched something in Sheffield, we launched something in Liverpool. I mean, at times it's felt like breakneck growth, but it's also from the context of like big media companies, it's actually quite sensible. Like adding one different publication per year and mm. growing the team as we could. I think we've been sensible, and I take on board the point that once you've got something, you've got momentum, and you've got something that people like obviously you should you know try and grow it as much as possible because it's it's what people want and it's you know hopefully providing a valuable service so I think we are trying to do that I mean I think we raised money from investors including Sir Mark Thompson Dame Diane Coyle all of those people we did that in August last year Mm. and since then we've launched a publication in Birmingham which has been amazing the dispatch Mm. and I would definitely hope to launch another publication this year when the right person comes along. Like we're speaking to various people about this. We've definitely got the money to do that. And I think we've got the right team to do that. But as you know, like the kind of stories we do and the kind of journalism we do is like very like labor intensive and stuff. So you, you Mm -hmm. have to, you have to make sure that you've got the right editors in place and the right like infrastructure in place. So I I think they were kind of right. I think Lionel Barber was kind of right in what he said there. The interesting comment he made there about having like a Manchester columnist, I, basically what he was saying was have a bit more opinion. Yeah, that was interesting. Like, we've always stayed clear of opinion. Yeah, we've, we've generally not run opinion pieces. I'd say some of our journalism will have a bit of opinion in it, but we've mm-hmm. like steered clear of like op-eds, like opinion comment pieces. We'll have a bit of tone and analysis, but not yeah. an outright opinion piece. Not just like an opinion piece. I actually think, if you look at David Lloyd, who writes for our The Post, our title in Liverpool, yeah. he is a bit of a columnist. Like most of his pieces are about like, I've got this point of view and I'm going to write it in a funny and entertaining and persuasive way, rather than I'm going to call up 10 different people. And to be fair, people really love that. Mm. So I think, again, it's nice to have this kind of feedback because you do think, yeah, we could be doing a little bit more of that. What I didn't want to do is do it at the beginning because at the beginning I wanted to set a tone of national media has, to me, feels like it's become more and more opinionated. I don't know, like hot takes and kind of like the Tories are terrible for this reason or like Labour's fucked up for this reason. And I think that I get the sense that what people want is a bit more of a kind of like this journalist has made an honest attempt to speak to a range of people. And they've come up with like a piece and they've really thought about it. I wanted that to be our main form of journalism, basically. But now we've got that established, I think they're actually right that we could introduce a little bit more like, hey, we've got this person who writes every two weeks and they take a view on things. So, yeah, no, it was it was good to listen to that podcast, actually, because whenever I speak to different people, I always think, like, oh, yeah, maybe they're right about that. Maybe we should try this. Maybe we should try that. Maybe you like to keep your core principles the same, but you try to be flexible about how you evolve. So, yeah, I, I thought that was a good idea. Yeah, I think it's one we'll come back to for sure. Mm. And just to pick you up on what you just said, that imperative for starting the mill in the first place, that local news was in such a, a dire situation, that that's still very much a reality. And, and it feels like more people are becoming aware of it or, or more people are talking about it. I mean, what do you think the actual benefit is of people being more aware of the crisis in local news? What does that change? Yeah, it's a good question, actually, because when I tweeted out the Dominic Ponsford analysis in Press Gazette, that we just talked about, I said, like, this should be setting off alarm bells in Westminster. And mm. I suppose as someone who really cares about this issue, I would like there to be more of a public discussion about it. So in America, Margaret Sullivan, who's a media columnist and commentator, she wrote an amazing piece in the Washington Post magazine like a couple of years ago that really rang the alarm bell, right? Mm. And McKay Poppins, who's a big writer over there, he wrote something for The Atlantic about one of these big media companies that's trashing their, their local journalism in, in, in the US. So I think in a democracy, if there is something that could hurt 
local communities and there's something that could hurt local democracy and even local economies, right? Cities need great journalism to spread good ideas and to spread companies that are growing, etc. I think when there's something that could damage those things, it should be talked about. It should be recognised. That doesn't mean that I think the government should be the one leading the way in solving it. But there might be things that the government can do. Like, why is it that, for example, public notices where, like, you know, if you start a bar and you get a licence to sell alcohol, you have to do an ad in the local paper. Why does it have to be in a print local paper? Like, could mm. could changing that mean that small startups who are trying to fund proper journalism can actually get some f- extra advertising funding, for example, from all these sources? Why is that all going to, like, reach PLC and NewsQuest? I think that'd be an interesting mm. thing to look at. I think there are probably things that the government can do to encourage a more vibrant sector mm. and to avoid this scenario where you have a city where there's one big dominant newspaper owned by a company that's listed on the London Stock Exchange or it's owned by an American media company or it's owned by a private equity company. Like, I do think there are things that should be done, but the main thing is I just think a conversation helps. Like, I think it helps to focus the minds of readers on like why it's important to pay. I think it focuses people on what are the downsides like what are the things that are hurting us there was such an interesting column in the new york times about a year ago that said maybe like the level of public mistrust that we have like the alienation Mm. the polarization where people feel so polarized particularly in the us but we've definitely seen it in the uk too maybe that is partly because people used to read a lot of local information that they had a a say in they knew the counselor if they saw something about the local school they could go and do something about it they could go to the local meeting they had agency now most of what we read because of the collapse of local news and because of the rise of the internet is national or global most of what you read is not about your local area it's about you know your country or something happening in the world and you don't have any agency over that so you get angry you can't do anything about it and maybe that's what's driving a lot of the polarization there's no like evidence for that but i think it's a really interesting theory and therefore i think this debate should be had publicly i think that people should recognize the incredible harm that happens in communities when you lose great local journalism and if they do i think more solutions will come out more entrepreneurs who want to change things will happen more policy change will happen that will facilitate the kind of things that we're doing so i think it would just be a positive thing Mm, I agree. And as we headed into 2024, you published a piece on The Mill talking about how you need to have a kind of irrational optimism in order to make new ventures work, to, to have faith in local journalism. I'll read out one of those quotes. You wrote, since starting this company, I've learned that the most important dimension of leadership is getting people to believe in your vision for the future. Having a vision for what is possible is what you need at the beginning that irrational optimism I talked about. We've been going through a, a few fairly bleak statistics. <laughs> yeah. But are you still feeling optimistic about local news? I sure? think I think I feel really optimistic about what we're doing and what some other people like us around the country are doing. Like, I really love Michael McLeod's Edinburgh Minute, mm. right? That's a great newsletter. It's different to what we're doing. It's not long reads. But Michael gets how to grow something. He gets how to create community. He understands that journalism is about relationship with readers, not just, like, content so i feel optimistic about those things i think i'm like a naturally optimistic person so i think that that's helped because i can kind of try and spread that and i don't know you guys are optimistic too like we we all i think the team and me you and jack and sophie and the other jack and everyone else like i think there's a lot of kind of like let's just try something Mm. so i think i think we're all optimistic i feel very optimistic about what we can do and i feel very optimistic that with the right funding 
and the right like entrepreneurial sort of drive and whatever that lots of people will be able to create better local journalism than it's currently being created by you know your reach plcs and your new news quest and stuff i am really optimistic about that and it's just also i suppose i'm just optimistic about how much like impact you can have like we're a tiny team right mm. like people listening to this or our office it's like a very tiny space and not many people and yet we're having a, a really nice impact mm. and like i think the guardians like linked to the mill three times in the past what's it like two weeks mm. like bernie sanders is in here talking about local news and alan rosbridge and lionel barber having on the podcast i'm actually going to a, a house of lords committee i think it's next week to give some evidence so mm. it's nice actually like like you don't need to have hundreds and hundreds of people to have a, an impact and to inspire other people to do stuff. And I talked about Michael in Edinburgh, like he started the Edinburgh Minute after hearing me on Radio 4 talking about stuff. So it's like the publicity actually breeds more, you know, like innovation and other people trying things. So no, I am definitely optimistic, as you know, it's kind of challenging day to day sometimes, but like yeah. in the longer view, yeah, like I am really optimistic. That's really great to hear. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Yoshi. And yeah. thank you all for listening. Like a certain American politician, we're, we're always here for your financial support. <laughs> Please yeah. head to manchestermill.co.uk forward slash subscribe if you want to read our journalism. We publish four times a week and two of those stories are free to read. And two will be just for members only. And you'll also get exclusive invites to our events and our discussions. For now, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining me, Yoshi. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And we will see you next week. Bye.